This is just a continuation of our series, you know, on desires. And this is not an easy series. And make no bones about that. For me, uh, it's not an easy series. I know for you to listen to, it's pretty hard. It's pretty, pretty in your face. Um, it, it is what it is. It's 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 been tough for me on multiple levels. Every seedy little desire of my past has reared its ugly head and has come back to haunt. Has come back to 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 to, to grab at me and to grab at my heart and hasn't let go. Um, I've struggled with times of discouragement in the series. Um, really, should I be saying this? Should I be doing that? Is it is it too edgy? I say it's PG thirteen, but you know this may be rated R uh, material here. Uh, just because the world is that way, it's so in your face and in our face that I, I, I struggle with uh, whether or not I should. It's not easy either on the front of just the whole nature of talking about desires. Now, again, I compared this in the first series, in the first message, to a series that I shared at the beginning of the year. That series on stuck. Whenever you're stuck, you want to be unstuck. Whenever you're stuck, you want somebody to throw you a life rope. Whenever you're stuck, you want to get out of it. All right, you'll do anything to get out of being stuck. But when you're in the desire mode, you don't necessarily want to get out of desire. By its very word and nature, it says, I want this. I fantasize about this. I dream about this. And who wants to get out of that? That's the fun. That's the adventure. That's the adrenaline. That's the dopamine that gets dumped into our brain that brings pleasure and sensations to us. And we live in this society where dreams and fantasies and desires have really become idols to us. And, and I, again, I talked about it last week in, in the Old Testament. We're going to look at it this week in the New Testament. You're going to see, and I'm going to just say it again, I'm going to say it again, that these desires become idols to us if we do not keep them in check. And I mentioned something last week. i got to correct myself in history. I said it was a part of our Constitution. It's actually a part of the Declaration of Independence. When it built into our Declaration of Independence, we say this, that we hold these truths to be self-evident. This is the preamble that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these, three things, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We live and die by that. We have a nation that we are card-carrying citizens of. Be built on that belief that we all should have that freedom, that liberty to pursue happiness. The problem is, is what is happiness? And for a lot of people, what happiness is, is really me getting what I want, when I want it, how I want it. It really comes back to desires. I want this, I want that, I want them, I want that position, I want that car, I want that status, I want that piece of clothing, whatever it may be, these desires well up inside of us, and we have this constitutional right, or this, this declaration of independence right, that I can pursue that. And you know what? You can. And that's the good thing about being an American. And the problem is, is that even though we're an American, we make idols of those things. And a lot of those things look like money and possession. A lot of those things look like sex and pleasure. And a lot of those things look like power and pride. Those are the, those are the three biggies that for the next three weeks, we're going to break those down one by one. We've been building up for the next three weeks. And just getting into these areas that in our culture, absolutely pervasive throughout it, and they conjure up inside of us these desires. 
And again, that's kind of what we have defined as the pursuit of happiness, the American dream, if you will. And the American dream is something that we throw it around. And we, but it has a history to it. A guy by the name of James Adams was the one who coined the phrase in 1931. And he even gave definition to it. And this is what he said. It's a dream in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain the fullest stature in which they uh, are innately capable and be recognized. This is the last phrase. Be recognized by others for what they are. The American dream defines us. Having, possessing, owning, attaining, that is defining for us. That, that says who we are. That's how we are identified in our American dream culture. We are defined by what we are. That's power and pride. We're defined on what we do. That's sex and pleasure. We're defined on, by, by what we have. That's money and possessions. You see in there, our definition of an American is just that. Now, a lecture series was done at the Harvard University, the William Macy Lecture Series in 1998. It later became a book. De Blanco is, is the author's name. The title of the book is The Real American Dream. So it fits right into what we're talking about. And it's the subtitle, The Mediation of Hope, or The Mediation on Hope, excuse me. And what he does is he historically looks at America and he says, this is what America defined hope as. Again, this is not Sunday school literature. This is Harvard University lecture series material. Let me give you the, the crypt notes of it. Basically, he says America is built on hope. And what our hope has been on is, first of all, it was a hope in God. We really believed as a nation that as we were forming as a nation, that we would be one nation under God. That we, that, that God was at the center, that God would be at the, uh, at the center of every one of the, uh, of the states and the colonies and all of the founding of our nation. In fact, there were some states, when you go back and look at it, it was illegal not to be in church on Sunday. You look back at the history of it. There were different states that had different, uh, uh, that had different religious affiliations, almost congregational Puritans, different states, again, kind of took ownership of different states and beliefs. It was a, Nation under God, if you will. Hope was chiefly expressed through a Christian story that gave meaning to suffering and pleasure alike and promised the deliverance from death. Again, that's DeBanco's definition of America, a hope built on God. But we changed. The Enlightenment came sweeping across America, and we became a a nation that our hope was built on the nation itself. Patriotism was born. This existed during the Great Wars of America. The the Spanish-American War, you can talk about World War I and II, you can talk about the Korean War. Throughout that entire generation, of which Tom Brokaw calls it the greatest generation, lived during that time. And this was a nation, this this was a country that was built on the patriotism, on the foundations, a belief that we are a great nation. But something happened in the 60s. When the Vietnam War, it was a totally different response when the soldiers came home. And we turned into the self-nation. The nation that built its hope on self. Individual rights. Individual freedoms. The sexual revolution happened during this period of time. The 1960s to the present. We are living in a, in a time, in an age, in an epic, where as a nation we believe we are built on self Again, individual rights, individual freedoms, individual wants and desires. We should have it. We have a sense of entitlement. 
Tim Keller said in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he said, Western secular cultures make an idol out of individual freedom. This leads to a breakdown of the family, rampant materialism, careerism, and the idolization of romantic love, physical beauty, and profit. We live in a day where we have to reclaim, again, a nation under God. I don't know that we're ever going to go back. I think that ship has left the dock. We can, as we go to the polls this week and vote, hopefully you will, that you will vote your values. But you know what? Whether or not we're going to be able to turn the tide and change the cultural flavor or emphasis on self, I don't know. But it is really what has marked us as a nation, as individuals. We built ourselves as the gods. Almost this selfish desire of what I want, when I want, how I want it. And I mentioned from the very beginning of this series, I mentioned don't trust your desires. You've got to keep your desires in check. You gotta make sure, you gotta filter them, you gotta, you gotta check them out, you gotta make sure they have some alignment with the divine, okay? You gotta make sure that they're not just your desires welling up inside of you. So, so don't trust them. And I base that on scripture, Jeremiah, and, and other, other verses in the Bible. Beware also that your desires, they'll become idols to you. And again, I referred to last week in 2 Kings, whenever they worshiped God, they feared God but they also served their own gods. Well, I'm afraid that's kind of what we look like in America today. We come to church on Sunday. We might even serve and teach before we came in here. We breathe in, we breathe out. We talk about serving one, worshiping one. We're a part of the church. We're a member of the church. We even give to the church. But Monday comes, Tuesday comes, normal everyday life comes, and we kind of do it our own way. We call our own shots. Why? Because we live in the self-generation. We live in it's about me. It's built on me. It's about my individual rights. It's about my desires. It's about me achieving my desires. And there becomes a problem then. Then life becomes about what? My desires. There's a problem with that because that begins to crowd in and become our God. Jesus was speaking with his disciples, talking about the parable of the sower. And he said this, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches... And the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. Now, I just want you to keep that image in your mind for the rest of the message today. That what happens is in this world of busyness, in this world of, of affluence, in this world of all that we can get and get all you can and can all you get and set on the can kind of lifestyles, then what, what happens is, is this world we're going to come in and it's going to choke out something. It's going to choke out the very voice that you need to be paying closest attention to, the voice of God. Beware of it. Because it's out there, it's real, and it becomes idolatry is what happens. When we start listening to other, other voices, and we start supplementing, because that's what idolatry is, we start supplementing, we start substituting, and we start having our God, Jesus, our God on Sundays, but then we have our gods on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and throughout the rest of the week. Take your Bibles, be finding the book of Rome, Romans. We're going to go to Rome today. Rome in the first century. Looks a lot like America in the 21st century. Very affluent, top of the top of the food chain, uh, superpower of that day. Rome ruled the world. Caesar ruled the world, and he ruled it from Rome. Rome was the most progressive, most educated, most affluent area of that time and age that we know of in in, in that time of ancient history. And as you look at Rome and you understand Rome. 
and you understand their their morality and you understand their ethics you you begin to see that hey there's a lot of a lot of common ground between between Rome and us but i want you to notice this about this passage you'll find that the same problem they had in the old testament we talked about last week where they feared god and worshiped they feared god and they worship excuse me they worshiped god and they served their own gods we're going to find the same thing in the new testament We're going to find the same thing, that they're having a problem with idolatry. It always comes down to idolatry. Who am I listening to? Who am I bowing down to? Who is really my God? And what is really my God? And you find it here in Romans chapter 1. It says, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him. Isn't that a shame? They knew who God was. They knew there was a supreme God. They had doctrinal alignment that God is omnipotent, omnipresent, all those omnis of God, okay? But, hey, it's a problem. They didn't glorify Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became as fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal humans. That, my friend, is nothing more, nothing less than idolatry. When anything out there steps in the place of God, even though I might know God, even though I might know about God, even though I could fill in the blanks on God, I still am not giving God, Jesus, the rightful place in my life. Then I have something else out there that's an idol. I have something else that's creeped in and taken over. And notice that being the birds and the animals and the reptiles, I don't know what kind of crickets or or reptiles or or bugs or animals that they were worshiping, about like we worship our cats and dogs maybe in our own culture today. But the point is this, is that they had an idolatry problem, just as we do. They knew who God was, but they didn't honor Him as God, just as we do in our culture today. How does God respond to that? Answer that in your mind. How does God respond when we know who God is, but we don't honor Him as God? How does God respond to the fact that we have these great desires? And yes, Jesus, I love you, and you're going to have a place in my life on Sunday. Man, my checkbook is mine. My career is mine. My relationships outside of what you know, Mike, are mine. What does God think about that? God does something. He does it three different times in this passage of Scripture, so you can't miss it. You might miss it once. You won't miss it the second time, and you certainly won't miss it the third time because he says it three different times. He does something again and again and again. He gave them up. He gave them up. Now, you just circle that or underline it in your Bibles if you have it because it's a very important phrase. It's what all the passage pivots on. He gave them up. He didn't give up on them. I don't think that at all. I think God doesn't give up on us. If God uh, gives up, uh, gives us up to something, it doesn't mean that he's given up on someone. God is always wanting to redeem them back. But listen, this is what may happen. Listen, listen, listen. We may be so in love with our desires and try to fit a little bit of God in I feel a little bit of Jesus in, but we so much love our desires. And God knows it. You know what God may do? He may just do this. Okay, you can have it. Cheers. You wanted it? You can have it. 
You wanted that car? You wanted that career? You wanted that dream home? You wanted that dream boat? You wanted that whatever? You wanted that relationship? You wanted it? I've done everything I can. I put counsel in front of you. I put godly people in front of you. I put my word in front of you. I've done everything I can to get you on the right track. But listen, if you're going to just keep chasing your desires, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to back away. I'm going to let you have it. I don't think God does it out of spite, out of anger, any more than a parent does it to our child. They love them, but they have to just let them go. You find it in the New Testament. You find it in the Old Testament, Psalm 81, verse 11 and 12. It says, my people would not listen to me. My people would not listen to me. What were they listening to? So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts and to their own desires. I want you to notice between first, uh, between Psalms and Mark chapter 4, I want you to notice the parallel. Both of them had desires. Both of them, God did this. He says, okay, you can have it. Turns it over to him. Says, it's yours. You can do it. You're going to choke my voice out. You're going to not listen to me. I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to let you go with it. Now, what happens here in Romans? Let's go back to Romans and just focus there. What happens to Romans when he does this is because of the sins of that culture, because of this, what was going on in that land, he just has to go like this to them and pushes it over, gives, it, gives them over to it. And I want to show you these three different progressions here, or if you will, or digressions uh, of our desires. One, you see here, and I told you this is going to be PG-13 series, so just get ready, okay? It may be R today. There's unbridled, unbridled sexuality. I'm going to make a blanket statement across the room today, and I may, I may hit some of y'all wrong, but I'm going to just say it because I really believe it. Everyone in this room from this side to this side has something wrong in their perceptions and understandings of sexuality. Psychologists call it an arousal template. And what we do is we go through life and we pick up things. We experience things as children. We experience things with relatives. We hear things at church. We hear things at school. We hear things in the locker room. We pick up things. And all of this is adding to an arousal template that makes up who we are and how we're attracted and what turns us. And we're not talking about fetishes or personalities or things like that. But there are things that we pick up and that make up who we are and shape us. They jade us. They, they mess us up even. Patrick Carnes is the guy who I learned this first from. He says, the total constellation of our thoughts, images, behaviors, sounds, smells, sights, fantasies, an object that arouse us sexually. Because it's the nature of myself, it's the nature of this series, I don't want to talk to you, I want to talk with you. So when you come to this section right here, I have to talk about myself for just a second, to just give an example. So... I spent a lot of my early development years getting a whole lot of my sex education through stashes of magazines. I knew where to find them. I knew where they were hidden, and I would go to them. I used to babysit for a family, and the family had stashes of them. When I would babysit for them, the child would be napping. I would be looking at magazines. All along, I was building a template in my arousal. So I grow up and I become a 
a follower of Christ in a deeper way, but I'm still having the same temptations. Because this is not one year, this is not two years, this is five, this is ten years of this. So you grow up and you go on and you get married. You have a you meet a good Christian girl and you go to a Christian counselor and you you have a Christian wedding and you go on a Christian honeymoon, whatever that might look like. But uh, you just do everything the Christian way. And that just fixed it all, right? No. No. The template was still there. I still have images in my mind that I can recount from my first experience of viewing pornography. As far as I know, at 45... I, 46 now, I guess, I will always have that. I've done everything I can to erase it, but it's still there, and it still shapes a bit of who I am, and it messes me up. When I say that we are sexually distorted and we are messed up, this is true throughout our culture. You've got to realize that Hollywood makes about 400 films each year, but every month there are 700 pornographic movies produced. What a contrast. There's more money in pornography than there is in the NFL, Major League Baseball, or the NBA franchises combined. There is that much out there. You say, Mike, I, I don't struggle with that. You might struggle with something bad that's happened in your past. You might have gotten some bad information. You might have had a bad relationship over here, and it's filtering into your present reality. It's a part of that template. That makes up who you are. Verse 24, if you look there, it's therefore God gave them up. That's the first time he gave them up. Gave them up to the lust of their hearts. I'm not saying he gave up on them. He gave them over to. He said, okay, you want to seek out this sexual perversion? You want this? I'm going to back away. You know what? God never took my porno away from me. He never took it away from me. Even much as I prayed that he would take it away from me. He never took it away. And it's still there. I allowed it to become a part of me and to shape me as an idol of my life. I would live for it. The NIV translates that verse, verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires in their hearts. Verse 25, it's interesting how you come in here. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Can you not write idolatry in the margin of your Bible there? They are literally practicing idolatry here because they are worshiping the human body over God who created the human body. There's a problem with our our processes as we grow into this sexually charged and energized society. C.S. Lewis said it like this, lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared to that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Let me say this about lust. It is a cheap, cheap, second-class B-movie to real intimate love between a husband and a wife who committed themselves solely to one another, to please one another, to pleasure one another, to fulfill one another without any holding back. It's one of the most beautiful experiences. The second time that 
that God will give us over is in the unnatural sexuality. Now, this is where I get really politically incorrect, not intentionally. In fact, if I could teach on anything else other than this today, I would love to. But I cannot talk about desires. I cannot talk about this and not... I cannot talk about temptations. I cannot talk about sexuality and not talk about what I'm about to talk about. Because I can't dodge it. I'd have to skip over two very clear verses in Scripture. They may be the most controversial Scripture verses in all of the Bible today. Not controversial because they're hard to understand, hard to interpret. It's very clear what they're saying. It's very clear. Some people will say, oh, that, when you start talking about homosexuality, homosexuality and, and lesbianism, Mike, you just need to catch up with the time. That, that ship has left the dock, and I get that in our culture. And we have a culture that, that is embraced and accepted, and they're talking about intolerance. And they've even hijacked the civil rights movement from lingo to call it a civil rights issue. I have problems with that. You know, you realize the first century, you realize that Rome, it was pervasive. Plato, in his book, Symposiums, he condoned the lifestyle. The 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were practicing homosexuals. Suetonius said of Julius Caesar, he said every, that, that Julius Caesar was every woman's man and every man's woman. This was a demented, unnatural, sexually charged culture. Now go to verse 26 with me. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations with those who were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, he says a lot in these verses here. He talks about it being dishonorable, unnatural, contrary to nature, shameless. He talks about a lot of things. In fact, some people have taken and hijacked that that phrase that, that, that they engaged in naturals. In fact, there's a professor at Yale. His name is uh, John Boswell who has taken that passage and he said, yes, 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 yes. God created some people homosexuals and if they were to go heterosexual, then that would be unnatural for them and so they shouldn't do that. I have never seen a more twisted interpretation of Scripture to try to make it condone what I feel about something than anything else. Because the very next phrase is, is contrary to nature. And you look at these two words here. Exchange the natural. Physikos is the Greek word here. It means they physically gave up what was naturally physically, let me just put it like this, fit together, okay? What naturally physically fit together, they gave that up. Contrary to nature. We get the word species from that word. Gender from that word. They went contrary to gender identity. They went contrary to their gender, who they were, and as God made them. I want to say, make a statement here, and then I want to break it down, and we'll move on. In fact, any hate mail, you can just send it to Mike at gracepointchurch.net. Homosexual lifestyle is not natural because it's not sustainable 
is physically and emotionally unhealthy and it's morally incorrect. Let me just break those down. It is not sustainable. Birds and bees, friends, okay? I know we have laboratories now, but you just understand it from a very natural point of view. It's a non-sustainable way. If all of us went that track outside of laboratories, life ceases to exist. It's a non-sustainable way. Number two, it's physically and emotionally unhealthy. Think, Mike, I'm going to push back on that. Those who, who have that proclivity, they need to have the freedom to express it. Listen, that gets into a whole lot of that arousal template. It gets into a whole lot of the discussion around that. Brown University, clearly not a Christian university, though founded as a Baptist university, clearly not conservative, you know, clearly not conservative uh, any longer at all. They allow, obviously allow students to come on board, but they tell students that come in with a homosexual lifestyle, they'll tell them this that those who practice homosexuality on campus have higher rates of HIV and AIDS, have higher substance abuse issues, have higher depression issues. The reality is that it's not healthy. And you can go on into scientific studies and you can talk about those who practice lesbianism, they're six times more likely to commit suicide. Those who were married as lesbians, not just living together, men, eight times more likely. You think, Mike, okay, it's because they've been shoved in a closet and they haven't been able to, to breathe and to live and to, to express themselves. That study was done in Denmark three years ago. Denmark, in 1989, became the first nation to legalize homosexual marriages. So this is not something that is hidden, pushed down, uh, covered up in that country. It's embraced. But yet they're finding that it's not healthy. It's not morally correct. You think, Mike, stop it right there. We're not going to shove our Christian views into anybody else. We can't do that. And I get that. We're, we're, we're all the separation of churches. That I, I get it. But please, can we have some kind of a moral code? If we don't have some kind of a moral code, who's to say I can't rob you tonight? Who's to say I can't burn your house down tonight? If there's not some form of a moral code out there that says this is right and this is wrong. If we don't have a moral code, we have anarchy. So, okay, where are we going to get our moral code? Well, let's get it from Christianity because that's how our nation was founded. I would like to think that. But let's not. Let's not. Let's, let's look at a moral code. Let's look at Islam. Let's look at Buddhism. Let's look at Hinduism. Let's find some objective moral code out there. You check every one of the major recognized religions of the world, and not a single one of them condones homosexuality. Try homosexuality in an Islamic nation and see how that gets you. The point I'm making is this. It's not morally right. So where do we go with it? in our culture. What is natural? What is natural? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says that God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him and he created a male and female. Very clear identities. Very clear. And this is in the perfect world. I know it. But shouldn't we strive for the way God made us? Genesis 2, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Listen, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus today. This is not a sermon on homosexuality. Did you not just listen to the first one? It was about my own sexual proclivities. My own struggles. Because I, when I allow my desires to control me, 
Nobody should allow their desires to control. What if they're born that way? Listen, I was told when I was in the fourth grade by a doctor after I was diagnosed with hypoglycemia and then him studying my family history of alcoholics all the way through my, my family back generations. He said, Mike, at fourth grade, he's telling me, Mike, you have a proclivity towards alcoholism. I couldn't tie my shoes or know my multiplication tables in, in, in the fourth grade. And he's telling me I could be an alcoholic. What it is, he's saying that I have a proclivity towards that. I have a tendency towards that. I might end up that way because I'm wired that way. Listen, there may be people who are bent in certain directions or another, but following our desires doesn't make it right. We've got to check our desires. We've got to break down those idols. If I haven't hit you with the first two, then let's try this, this next one. Unguided lives. God will just say, okay, you want to do it your own way? Go for it. When you look at verse 28 to verse 32, he throws out about 20 different ways that he'll just turn us over to it. God gave them up to their debased minds to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malicious. They are gossips. Now, please listen to this. God does this to homosexuals. God does this to pornographers. God does this to gossipers. If there is anything that I can't control in my, if there's any idol in my life, if there's anything in my life that I am given to more than given to God, God does this. He says, you can have it. And you can live with the consequences of it. He goes on. He doesn't stop there. Gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent. That's those who basically have... Uh, have pride and anger built up inside of them, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, um, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Listen, the list goes on. What's he trying to say here? He's trying to say this. If there's anything that you are worshiping, honoring, lifting up, holding up higher than your relationship with God, If you're living this kind of free-spirited life, God will do this and give it to you. You can have it. You're going to get to live with it. You're going to get to feel the consequences of it. Think, Mike, it's so mean of God. Why would he do that? Why would he give us up? He's not giving up on you. He's giving you over to your sins. I give this example. It's much like a parent, and I've seen it happen in my 25 years of ministry. It's even happened in my own family, with extended family, when you have substance abuse issues. And everything the family does, they stand in front of the train wreck about to happen. They they stand in front of the dumpster fire, and they pour the water on it. They do everything they can to get this individual who's on this substance, on this pill, on this bottle, on this illegal narcotic, and they do everything they can to rescue them. And I've seen it again in my own family. I've seen it in this church. I've seen it wherever. And finally, the parent does this. We have prayed. We've spent money on counseling. We've, We've got help. We have people praying. We've gone to the church. 
we've grounded you. We've taken privileges away from you. You can have it. You can have it. And they let the law take its course. They let the natural consequences take their course. And you know what happens. God turns us over when we love our desires more than we love Him. What is it that you desire? What is it that you love? How do we respond? And I want to close with this real quickly because he goes on into chapter 2 and he says this, Therefore, so therefore it ties back to the previous chapter. We don't need to be judging. We don't need to be the judges. Therefore, you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. Listen, I don't want to be the one standing up with a sign saying God hates so-and-so. Casting judgment on someone. It's not my place. I have no right for that. And there's a lot of churches that have been doing that. And I've seen pastors who will stand at their pulpits and they'll beat down somebody else's sin, but yet they'll go back for seconds and thirds at the buffet line, ignoring their own gluttony. We don't need to be judging. Now, can we, with our discernment, can we look at truth and say, okay, this is a government official that I want in office and, and, and this is a standard or moral that I want in my school systems? Yes, we can do that. Don't get caught into the tolerance thing. It's about truth. The second response is we can demonstrate the kindness of God. If you go on in verse 4, it says this, Or you presume upon the riches and the kindness and the forbearance and the patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You really want to know what's going to change this world? It's not going to be us taking our Bibles and cramming it down somebody's throat. It's not us going up to somebody and calling them some insulting phrase. It's not me getting in somebody else's grill and telling them what's wrong with them. It's by me showing kindness and embracing them. Not accepting their sin, but accepting them. Embracing them around truth. Now, there's been something about my life, and I don't know why it is, but ever since I was a child, there have been people in my life that have been of the alternative lifestyle. I've had friends in college. I've had colleagues on the mission field. I've had people in all my churches that have either struggled, have come out of the closet, that have all kinds of manners of this. I had a person a couple of years ago come to me and uh, basically had not been in church in about 17 years. And they came to me and they sat down because somebody advised them to come to me. And uh, said, you're my last chance. And so he, he sat down and we talked and he told me about his struggles. Told me about his proclivity, if you will. And... I didn't pull out the scriptures and beat him over the head. I entered into a two-year Bible study with him. And we had a lot of great conversations. And we disagreed on a lot. But we always did it in an agreeable manner. I had lunch with him not too long ago. Beautiful relationship. We're not on the same page. But I do embrace my friend. And we can do that. Because my ultimate aim that what he will experience through me is the kindness of God. And through that kindness and that brace and that acceptance of him without accepting his sin, 
that will lead him to repentance. He knows where I stand. We've studied the scripture together. We've even looked at this passage together. We're on two different pages, but my prayer is that he will experience the kindness of God through me. That will lead people to repentance. Would you bow your heads with me? This is not a message on homosexuality. This is a message on desire and how our desires will become our gods and how we can't trust our desires. They become idols in our life. And there'll be an idol long enough in our life that God will take his hands, he'll put them together, he'll rub it, and he'll throw them up and he'll just say, okay, that's what you want, you can have it. And then the natural course of events will take place. And it's sad what happens on the other end. I want to ask every one of you who is struggling in any area, whether it's gossip, whether it's arrogance, malice, bitterness, lust, same-sex attractions, whatever it may be, you're struggling. It's become an idol. It's become something that's consuming you. There's going to be people around this room today. We don't always do this. There's going to be people across the front. There's going to be people in that landing area back there. They're going to have lanyards on. It's going to say prayer partner. These are my prayer partners. These are the ones I go to when I want somebody to pray for me. I've asked them to step forward and to be available for you to go to and pray for, pray with. All you have to do is go to them and just say, I just need prayer. Or I'm having struggles with this desire. They're not counselors. They're prayer partners. We had people in the last service do it. You may want to do it this time. Let me pray. Father God, this is your time. We are your play. We are your people. This is your hour. And I pray that, God, we are putting our desires, our idols on the altar today. And thank you, oh God, that we don't have to get right, be right, be perfect, have it all figured out that you accept us just as we are and it's through your kindness that you will lead us to repentance. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us? This is your time.